Hello and welcome to the Rashi Shir. We're about to start Perak Bet Pasuk Zion. But before that, I just want to say one little thing from Vayikra, if it's nice to say a little uh, something on the Parsha de Shavuah. So in the very beginning of Vayikra, it talks about, it's about Karbanot. And the first Korban is a Korban that somebody wants to bring just as a present. Um, as the first Pasuk says... Lots of pages in this book to turn. A person, which means someone who wants to offer a korban to Hashem. And Rashi says on the word Adam, he says, Why was it said? Just as Adam Harishon didn't offer any sacrifice from something that was stolen, Shahakol Hayashalo. There was no such thing as Adam Arishan stealing anything because everything belonged to him. Af atem lo min hagezel. So you also should not offer from something that is stolen. So I saw the Kliakar who says, it's pretty strange that Rashi feels the need to say this because this is a voluntary offering. This is something somebody just wants to give a present to Hashem just for the sake of it. So is it likely that somebody would go and steal a cow so that they could offer that cow to Hashem? Obviously, that would be wrong, and obviously nobody would want to do that. But says the Kliakai, you know what? There are people who make lots of money from illicit ways, from improper or uh, ways which actually are averot. And they want to sort of make a little heksha by they give some of the money to Sadaka. That's what we find, and it's a, it's a real-life phenomenon, that people give a little bit of their stealing stuff to Sadaka, and they think that makes it okay. And says the Kliakar, that's what Rashi is referring to. Because he doesn't say, you can't bring gezel. You can't bring something stolen. He says, you can't offer minha gezel from that which is stolen. Says the Kliakar, he's talking about somebody who has a lot of stolen stuff, and he wants to bring minha gezel, a little bit from that which is stolen. As I say, that people are accustomed to do, because they think by giving a little bit to Sadaka of their ill-gotten gains, that will somehow make it all all right. So Rashi doesn't say, you can't bring Gezel. He says, you can't bring Min HaGezel. And that's how the Kliakar reads that. Okay, we were in Bereshit, in Perak Bet, Pasuk Zion. We come to the very end. But it's just one thing I want to say on what we said last time. Last time we did Rashi on V'yipach Ba'apav. Hashem blew into his nostrils. And Rashi explained that um, Hashem had to do something on the sixth day that was both from the lower worlds and the upper worlds. The lower worlds was the dust which he formed into the body of the human, and the upper worlds contributed the breath from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And he went through the days of creation to show that they were leveled, lower worlds and upper worlds, so if Hashem had created man just from the upper world, there would be kinabama separation. There would be jealousy between the different parts of creation. That's what we talked about last week. But I just wanted to add something from the muscular David, who says, hang on a minute, there aren't six days of creation, technically there are seven, and, according to one opinion of Rashi that he said earlier, something was created on the seventh day. What was that? Rest. Menucha. Rashi said there's two ways of understanding that Hashem finished it on the seventh day. And the second way of understanding was that Hashem created rest. So says the Masculine David, what do you have to say about rest? that it also must be from the upper world and the lower world. Because if it were just a physical rest for humankind and just a lower world thing, 
then you get back to the same problem of having jealousy between different parts of creation. So since, according to Rashi, Hashem was very hard by the sixth day to make sure there was a balance, then obviously that must apply to the seventh day as well. So we see from that that when we rest on Shabbat, it's not just a physical rest to make us feel better, although it is that as well. It's also a rest which is part, which has a ruchni, has a spiritual, has an ilion element that takes us to new high spiritual levels. Okay, now the last words on uh, Pasuk Bet, well, let's look in the, in the original Pasuk, Vayahi ha'adam nefesh chaya. And the man was a nefesh chaya. Says Rashi on nefesh chaya, he says, af v'chaya nikra'u nefesh chaya. We've got a problem. Because we know, for instance, in Pasuk Yudtet, if you look there, it says the animals also were a nefesh chaya. Those two words are said explicitly in Pasuk Yudtet in relation to the animals. Um, so, what's the big deal about Adam having a nefesh chaya? So it says Rashi, Ach zu shal Adam chaya shebekulam. But this nefesh chaya of humanity was chaya shebekulan. It was more chaya than anything else. Whatever chaya is, life or breath of life or life from Hashem. Why was it more than anything else? Shenitosef bo deya v'dibur. Because for it was added to him the power of knowledge and the power of speech. So it sounds like nefesh chaya stam means living. And that's a great bracha and uh, Hashem creates life in throughout the uh, work of creation, including in the animals, as it says, nefesh chaya. So here, Adam's got a nefesh chaya, but it sounds like it's a big deal. So says Rashi, it is a big deal, because this nefesh chaya is qualitatively different from the nefesh chaya of the animals, because this gives the power of dea the dibur. And that's what makes humans extra special. We know things and we speak things. Just a moment. So um, I refer you to Targum Onkelos, and if you look at Unculus on the last two words of the Pasuk, how he understands Nefesh Chaya, Luruach Mamalala, which means the spirit of speaking. So I'm not saying Rashi gets it from there, but Rashi, I think, is following in a similar kivun, similar direction to Unculus, who says that Nefesh Chaya, when it comes to humans, is not what he says it is when it comes to animals, because by animals he just translates it as nafsha chaita, but here it's ruach mamalala. It's the power of the spirit of speaking. Now I just want to say a couple more things before I take a question or a point. Why does Rashi have to say this? Why does Rashi have to say this? So I can suggest a couple of answers that I saw, and one is that the word ha'adam is apparently redundant, because we know about whom we are talking. We know that this whole pasuk is about Adam. Because it says at the beginning of the Pasuk, Vayitzer Hashem Elohim et ha'adam, afam in ha'adam av yepach ba'apav nishmat chayim. And it could then say, Vayihil in nefesh chaya. So why does it have to say ha'adam? So one answer to the question of what is driving Rashi here is the repetition of ha'adam. So that when it says, Vayihil ha'adam le nefesh chaya, it implies there was something special and something unique about the nefesh chaya that went with the adam. There's a nefesh chaya that goes with anyone else, as we know, as we will see. But this nefesh chaya is unique because it goes with ha'adam. And ha'adam is said a second time, even though technically it would be unnecessary uh, if we just thought it was just telling us about Adam, because Adam has already been referred to as the subject of this pasuk. So when it says, Adam nefesh chaya, it must be stressing that the nefesh chaya was unique to the Adam.
I also saw it suggested with the, the, the issue is the word Vayehi. Because, oh, um, I can't say everywhere, but there are many places in Chumash where it says, Vayehi, da da da, le, da da da. That something became fundamentally changed. And that's often what Vayehi does. So that would imply Vayehi ha'adam, the Adam is now raised to a new level, and that is the level of the Nefesh Chaya. So the Nefesh Chaya is something extra special which Adam is raised to. So either way, whether it's because of the repetition of Adam, whether it's because of the Vayahi, or might be something else altogether, Rashi is saying that the Nefesh Chaya that belongs to Adam is qualitatively different from that of the animals. Yes? Question was answered. Okay. Any other questions? Maybe they've been answered. Okay, let's move on. Okay, so now get into what happens to this Adam whom Hashem has now formed. Pasuk Chet. Vayita Hashem Elokim Gan Ba'edem. Mikedem. Vyasem Sham et Adam Asher Yatsar. Hashem Elokim planted a garden in Eden. Mikedem. We'll see what that means. And he put there the person whom he had formed. So we're now moving into Gan Eden. And we know there are sort of uh, pretty important things that are going to happen in Gan Eden. What does Rashi say about this Pasuk? He only really says two things. Although he takes a long time to say the second one. So the first one is he talks about the word Mikedem. By the way, what does Mikedem mean? What else could Kedem mean? Ancient time. Good. Something to do with earlier Kodem, or the East. Okay, so Rashi is going to tell us which one of those it means. And he says, it means, Mikedem, the Mizracho shall Eden. In the East of Eden, Natan et Nata et Agan. He planted the Gan. Now, <coughs> this, um, it could be understood as Mikedem as the East of Aden, in the sense of outside Aden. Um, John Steinbeck wrote a novel based on the translation in the King James Version of this verse that said, East of Eden. And Rashi doesn't think it means East of Eden. Rashi says clearly, shel Eden, in the East of Eden, not East, outside Eden, but in the East of Eden. Now, why does he think it means in the East of Eden and not outside of Eden? And the answer is very clear, it's very simple. Because the garden was Aden, in Aden. And then it says Mikedem. Now Mikedem, he completely rejects it means old or before. I'm not 100% sure why, but he certainly is rejecting that. And I'll come back to that point. Um, but he's also rejecting the idea that it, like, there's Eden. And from your side, east is outside Eden there, like to the east of Eden. Why he, does east imply outside and not just... Well, if you said it's the... East, he planted, it's in Caulfield, east. Would that mean outside of these? I don't think it implies that, I just think it like... Brook of Danica, I'm sure, I can't remember. To the right of Caulfield. Yeah, but if you say east of Caulfield, that implies it's not in Yeah, I think it could be. East of Eden, east of Caulfield. But in the east. Yes. He means, he... Okay. Okay. Are those... I don't know what the confusion is, but I'd just like to stress that contrary to the opinion of some, Caulfield, that's the Jewish area of Melbourne for those listening at home, Caulfield <laughs> is not Gan Eden. A lot of people make that mistake. <laughs> anyway, so the answer is, you're right, it certainly could mean 
in, Cor- in Eden in the east. And Rashi says that is what it means. Then why tell us the geographic? What's the point of telling us the geographic? Ah, that, well, the, because he's explaining what the, mean, what the word means in the Torah. Now, you might be asking, why does the Torah tell us the geographical reason? I, I don't know. Okay, sorry. Um, okay, but it's worth noting, by the way, we always talk about the Garden of Eden. It's not. It's the Garden in Eden. So Eden was a bigger area. And in the east, which is how Rashi translates Mikedem, it means the east side. Now, by the way, Rashi has had to translate the Mem of Mikedem in not a normative way. How, what letter would have been better for Rashi? Okay, a bet. He really, he's translating it as if it said Bukedem, in the east. And there are examples where a mem means in. Um, Hashem, what? Isn't that like... Um, Do we say Mimitzrayim being Bermitzrayim? I was thinking of Hashem Mesinaiba in Devarim. Uh, no, in, yeah, in Vezos Abracha, in Perek Lamadalad. No, Lamagimel of Devarim. Hashem Mesinaiba. So Rashi actually doesn't make that, the, the point there that it means Ber Sinai. Um, he explains that Hashem, as it were, came from Sinai. But uh, it, without that somewhat Midrashic explanation, where, as it were, was Hashem when he was giving the Aserah to Dibrot? Now, of course, Hashem is everywhere, but if I hear Hashem Ba Sinai really means he was coming on Sinai, because we understand that's where he was when, or that's where his presence was at the time of the Aserot Dibrot. So there, Miss Sinai can be read and normatively would be read as on Sinai, in Sinai. So here also, Mikedem, Rashi is reading it as if it means Bukedem in the east. Yes? Uh, just a quick question. Uh, where else does the Torah use the phrase Gan Ba'edin as opposed to Gan Eden? And which one is used more often, I guess? Wow. Um, it uses the phrase Gan Eden. I just noticed in Pasuk Tetvav. I didn't know that, but I'm just glancing through. Um, I don't think it uses it very often at all. And I've got a folly, funny feeling that might be the only other one. Um, we talk about Gan Eden in, in Midrashim and in the Gemara, etc., a great deal. But I suspect the Torah does not do it very often at all. So um, we will find out as we go along. But so far, one Gan Eden in Pasuk Chet and one Gan Eden in Pasuk Tetvav. And I think that might be it. Okay, uh, which is interesting. You, I mean, I, I took the trouble to say it, it's not really Gan Eden. It is Gan Eden. And yet, and yet here in Tetvav, it is Gan Eden. So... It's, it's a bit of both. But Rashi here is clearly saying there's a, gar- there's a place called Eden and there's a garden in the east of it, implying there's, there's other parts of it as well. Okay, then Rashi goes on to say the following. And this is a long piece, which basically has got one single point. V'im tomar, if you were to say, Harekavar ne'emar, it's already been said, Vayivra et ha'adam v'gomer, he created the man, etc. So, what's the question? Now, um, I, I've, I've mentioned this a few times, because probably Rashi actually has hinted about it at least one occasion, possibly more. But here is really the home address of this comment. But I've mentioned it a few times, because, the um, apparent repetition between chapter 2 and chapter 1 is something that a lot of people get quite excited about. Rav Soloveitchik built a whole thesis um, uh, uh, called um, The Lonely Man of Faith on the contrast between 
Adam as he's presented in chapter one, Adam he's presented in chapter two. And why, the reason I said Lahavdil Afel Afim, because I was about to quote the biblical critics who say that this is the proof, this is the starting point of all the proofs that the Torah was written by more than one person and was not written by Hashem, Chas Fashalom. Um, and here Rashi addresses that problem. And he addresses it very simply, and it's quite a simple solution. But his question is, what's going on here, the creation of man that we've just read about, has previously been described. Because in Perak Aleph Kafsayin, it says, Vayivra et ha'adam, etc. So says Rashi, I'll tell you what the answer. Re'iti b'breitza sh'rabi Eliezer b'no sh'rabi Yossi ha'galili. I saw in a brighter which lists the um, ways of learning Torah, or the uh, principles by which we apply our exegesis. It goes on, The 32 ways in which the Torah is expounded. Um, so every day we, we say at the beginning of davening the 13 ways according to Rabbi Shmuel, but Rabbi Elazar, um, the son of Rabbi Yossi, had 32 ways in which we uh, examine Torah. The and this is one of them. In other words, it's a valid way of interpreting the Torah. If you have a general description, and then after that you have a narrative detail, that is the explification, that is the further detail of the original general principle. In other words, it's not a repetition, it's a general heading, and then a detail so it's a device used in literature, it's a device used in television programs, and says Rashi, we see from the brighter, it's a device which is legitimately used to explain what goes on in the Bible, that you might have the same story but appears to be twice, but that's not what's going on, it only happened once, and the Torah gives a general rule and then an elucidation. And he says that applies to a lot of things that's going on between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So he goes on to say, Hashem created humanity. That's the general introduction. It didn't specify from where he was created. In other words, the dust and the breath. And it didn't specify his deeds. In other words, the story of what happened in Gan Eden. And then, after it said it in that general form, without details, it went back and expounded. And it says now, It says now Hashem formed. And then it says, He made Gan Eden flourish, or flower, which we're about to see. And it says, And he put him in Gan Eden. And he made a deep sleep fall on him. And that leads to the creation of Chavar, etc. And then Rashi says very clearly, this is the mistake that you might make, and people have made. Hashomea, the one who hears this, Savur Shahu Masa Acher, would think that this is another happening. The Eino Eila Paratoshal Rishon. And in fact, it's only the detail of what we've already learned about. The Chain Eitzel Habahema. And similarly with animals, Chazar Vakatav, it writes in Perak Yutpasik Yutet of Alperak, the Yitzer Hashem Elohim Minha Adama Kolchayat Hasadeh. Hashem formed. 
from the ground all the animals of the field, in order to explain what was meant by, uh, sorry, to what's coming later. It needs to say that the animals were created in order to link that to the fact the animals were brought to Adam in order to be given a name. And to teach us something else, another detail, it's a relatively minor detail we're about to mention, which wasn't there in the general introduction back in Perak Aleph. And that was, to teach us about the birds, but they were made from mud. That's a detail which is going to come up later that wasn't there before. So Rashi is saying that the whole, what is apparently is repetition, is the details that were just given, or the, the story was just given in very general form in Perak Aleph, and now it's the details. How Hashem made Adam, what he made him out of, where he put him, and what Adam then went and did. And the bit about the animals is not repeated for its own sake, but it's repeated to fit into the story of Adam, because as we all see, it's Adam goes to meet all the animals and give them names, so we have to be told the animals were formed then as well. So the basic principle is very simple, Perak Aleph is general and a general introduction and Perak Bet is the details of the same story. Says Rashi, you might think it's another story. It's not. And Lahavdil, you might think it's, uh, some people might think, not us, that it's another person writing and clumsily stitched together by the great editor. It's not. It's not two accounts. It's the same story told in a different way. Yes? Um, is Rashi or... Like, is there any source that accounts for why this is a technique? Or is it just comment, is it just descriptive? Like, this is what it is, and... Like, because it almost seems unnecessary to just have one account that has all of the information. Um, okay, from my knowledge, Rabbi Al-Azhar and Rashi does not say why. Does not answer your question. Um, the question of, is there a reason for doing it in this particular way? Um, but what I would say, as I said earlier, it is a literary device employed in all sorts of literary styles in, in novels. And you know, I, I will mention, because I think it's, it's, it's relevant to your question, um, how many times do we watch a TV program which starts out with you know, the headlines of what's going to happen that makes us really excited, and then for the next hour we actually see the details of what we were just given a, a little introduction to. Um, maybe we don't watch television, that would be probably better for many levels, but if we ever do, we will be familiar with that style, you know what I'm talking about. But maybe also from like a learning perspective, because it's not just a history book, it's a learning device, and we're meant to take lessons out of the Torah. It's like, to give over the general story, and as you grow, then you're now ready to learn the more complex view. It's very... like, I feel like when we're younger, we learn like Parakala from very general because that's how you learn, so you have a foundation, and then as you grow, this story grows with you. That's a very nice idea. It's a very nice idea. Um, I would disagree very slightly with your opening remark when you said <laughs> the Torah is not just a history book. It's not a history book at all. And I think it's important when we understand, when we, when we learn Torah, there's no point in asking questions, well, why doesn't the Torah give us this detail, this historical information? Because that's not the purpose of the Torah. Yeah. The Torah is exactly as you said, it's there to teach us things. That's its whole purpose. Um, so you suggested that Perak Aleph is like the entry-level version, and when we're ready for it, we can handle Perak Bet. 
which I think is a very nice idea. And as an educator, as a parent, I, I truly recognize that. But. It, it, no, the but is, <laughs> when we read the Chumash, we read at Perak Aleph, and then we go straight on to read Perak Bet. Yeah, but, but maybe it's telling us that there are different approaches which are age-appropriate or like, sophistication-appropriate. You read it now, maybe like, there are two contexts that we have to understand ourselves in. One on like the, like that we're significant in our own right, and one that we're part of the scheme of creation. Yeah, I mean, as as uh, well, probably many of us are familiar with what Rav Soloveitchik does to right. chapter one and chapter two, and he how he says that there's two paradigms here. Um, but I think probably we could answer your question: Why does it do it like this? By drawing on what we just heard and what I've just quoted, that um, the general one teaches us certain things, and then the specific one teaches us other things. Maybe, but it's important to note this is a. Uh, it, it, this is not an uncommon feature in Tanakh. There are a few places where the only, I'm thinking of a couple of places in Tanakh that I happen to be familiar with, the only way you can understand what's going on is it's not the same story happening twice, but it's a general introduction and then more detail. So it's a device that we see from time to time in the Tanakh. Okay, question is why does Rashi give this little spiel here on Pasuk Chet and not... Earlier, really, on Pasuk Zion is really where it, you could say it belonged. Because Pasuk Zion is Vayitzer Hashem Elohim et Ha'adam. So I saw an answer to that is Rashi started Pasuk Chet by explaining what Mikedem meant. What else could Mikedem have meant? Before. And who says it means before? Unculus. If you look at Unculus on Pasuk Chet, which means beforehand. So Onkelos reads this Pasuk in the pluperfect. Hashem had planted a garden in Eden, and Hashem had put there the man whom he had formed. Now, if Pasuket, and for that matter, everything subsequently is in the pluperfect, it had already happened then we have, no positive, we have no repetition, we have no contradiction. Perak Aleph says, he created man. Perak Bet says, and the man whom he had previously created, he put into Gan Eden. That would be fine. Um, I do have a slight problem with that approach, because Rashi, in the beginning of Perak Dalet, gives a rule for when the Hebrew is going to use the pluperfect, the, the had. If you just jump to Perak Dalet, Pasuk Aleph, so this is immediately after the expulsion from Gan Eden, or Gan Ba'eden. And Perak Dalad Pasuk Allah says, Adam yada et chava ishto. Adam knew, as in had relations with Chava, his wife, and then she became pregnant, and then she bore a child called Kain. And Rashi says that, and I don't want to talk about the philosophy of what's going on there, because there's a lot to say, but in Yetz Hashem we'll do that when we get there. But just look at Rashi on Adam yada, Says Rashi there, Kavar Kodem Ha'inyan Shalmala. This had already happened before the previous matter. Kodem Shachatav Nitrat Migan Eden. Before he sinned and before he was driven out from Gan Eden. And similarly, the pregnancy and the birth. Says Rashi, Kain was born in Gan Eden. Uh, Adam and Chava had relations in Gan Eden. That's actually what I was alluding to because um, that tells us something about the nature of intimacy, but it belonged in Gan Eden, but we're not talking about that now, it'll come later. Um, but then Rashi says, there's a textual proof for this. Sheim katav v'yada adam, 
If it had put verb followed by subject, which is the normal order in classical Hebrew, then we would learn that after the expulsion, he had children. However, it didn't say v'yada adam, which is the normal verb order, normal syntax. It said v'hadam yada, subject followed by verb, which is what we're used to in English, but is not the usual way in Hebrew. So Rashi seems to be establishing a rule here. One can ask whether it's always followed, but if you want a pluperfect, in other words, it refers to something that had already happened, you would have subject followed by verb. So if you go back to our Pasuk, you don't have that. You have, you have verb followed by subject. So it could be that Rashi couldn't accept this as a pluperfect, in which case, my reason for why he's given this explanation here on Pazaket, not Pazazan, falls away. But if you put it out on one side, and you stick to the, the thing about Mikedem uh, could have meant before, and if Mikedem had meant before, then Pazaket is to be understood in the pluperfect, and it's not a repetition, it's just like a reference back, and the question of why there's a repetition wouldn't arise. But Rashi, since he says Mikedem, means in the East, and does not mean before, so then Rashi's forced to explain why there's an apparent repetition. Because once Mikedeh means in the East, and it doesn't mean before, then we've lost the opportunity to explain Pazuchet as a pluperfect. And it looks like it's happening then, which means it looks like it's a repetition of what had happened before, and that's why Rashi has to give the explanation that we have here, a klal followed by a prat. Okay, let's move on to Pazuchet. Any questions? Any observations? Okay, good. So we don't have any anything that would seem like a repetition of anything from Perak Aleph and Perak Bet before this? Uh, well, we do have Pasuk Zion, which is why I said, really, Rashi should have made that point on Pasuk Zion. And he didn't. Um, I think... No. I think I'm... We've we only got a few Pasukim to check, so I'm checking them. And I think, no. Okay. But from now on, Pasuk Zion and Pasuk Chet and... <laughs> Pasuk Tet, and then a bit about the animals, is very clearly, apparently, a repetition. Uh, and those are the bits that Rashi mentions, actually. Okay, Pasuk Tet, Vayitzmach, Vayatzmach, sorry, Hashem Elokim, Min Ha'adama, Kol Eitz Nechmad Lamareh, V'tov Lama'achal, V'Eitz Ha'chayim B'toch Hagan, V'Eitz Hadad Tov Vara. So we're getting into the very uh, critical matters of the Eitz Chaim and the Eitz Hadar. So the Pasuk says, Hashem Elohim made flourish, made flower, min ha'adar, from the ground, kol eitz nechmad l'mareh v'tov l'machal. All trees which were pleasant to see and good to eat. V'eitz ha'chaim v'toch hagan, v'eitz hadar tov And there were also two special trees, one called the Eitz Chaim, in the midst of the garden, and one called the Eitz Hada Tov Vera. Now, you might wonder, you should wonder, what is the, what's the deal with these trees? What is the Eitz Achayim? What is the Eitz Hadat? Um, we're not going to discuss that now, because Rashi will allude to it later. I'll tell you now that he doesn't have a lot to say. He certainly doesn't give a, a deep explanation of what is meant by Eitz Hadat and Eitz Achayim. We'll have to work out from the little bit that he does say what he understands those trees to be. But that's not for now, it's for later. Now, but what Rashi does say on the word Vayatzmach, Le'inyan hagan hakatuv medaber. About the garden, the Pasuk is speaking. 
What is Rashi refuting? What else might you have thought when it says, Vayatzmach Hashem Elohim min ha'adama kol eitz? Well, was that like what they talked about earlier, that it hadn't yet? Okay, so there's, well, there's part of a problem is, although it said in Perak Aleph that he created the trees, and then it says there was no tree. Uh, because nothing had grown, because there was no one to work the ground, which Rashi explained there was no person to daven for rain. But Rashi explained that by saying the trees were like at the, uh, um, just about to be sprouting, and now they sprouted. But I don't think that's the point, um, but thank you anyway. Um, I, don't, I think Rashi's already dealt with that. What you might have thought, if it weren't for this comment of Rashi, is it's talking about all the trees, all the trees in creation. So we're waiting for the trees to grow. After all, the last time we knew about trees was there weren't any in Pasuk Hay. And why weren't there any trees? I just said, because there was no rain. And then in Pasuk Vav, the Eid Ya'alem in Ha'aretz, a mist went up from the earth, the Hishka et Kol Ha'adama, and watered all the face of the earth. Still no trees, because that mist was for the sake of making the earth wet in order to knead, K-N-E-A-D, the earth together to make Adam, as Rashi himself said. So you might think, no, we're waiting for the trees. And you might think that Pasuk Tet is all about trees in general. So Rashi comes to say it's not about trees in general, it's about the trees in Gan Eden only. Why? What is unique about these trees? What does the Pasuk say about these trees? Apart from before you get to those two trees, what does it say about all the other trees? They were pleasant to look at, and they were good to eat. And that has not been said about other trees. So those features seem to be unique to the trees in Gan Eden. So Rashi says that this is not talking about trees in general. And the next comment of Rashi is Rashi says in the middle of of the garden. So, interestingly, that refers to Eitz HaChayim. doesn't explicitly say Eitz HaDat was Betoch HaGan. Eitz HaChayim was Betoch HaGan. Now, what does Betoch mean? See, the problem is Betoch can mean more than one thing. In the midst. It could mean in the midst of, or? In the middle. Exactly. It could mean in the midst of, like it's included in the trees of the gun, or it could mean Dafke in the middle. And Rashi says it means Dafke in the middle. Why do you think he says, in this case, Betoch is Dafka in the middle? Because all the trees are Betoch. Exactly, exactly. Because all the trees are Betoch Hagan, if Betoch means in the, in the midst of. If we've just said, as Rashi said in his first comment, so really the second comment depends on the first. Rashi said in the first comment, we're just talking about trees in Gan Eden. So there's a bunch of trees. Where are they? They must be in Gan Eden, by definition. So then you get another tree, which is Betoch Hagan, it can't mean it's in the midst of the garden, as in, in somewhere in the garden, because we know it's somewhere in the garden. So what does the pastor come to emphasize? It comes to emphasize that it's in the middle of the garden. And we will come back to that point because um, the, the fact that it's in the middle is referred to later. Now we go on a little bit of a deviation. So the next... Um, Five Pesukim talk a little bit about geography and they are really not relevant to the main thrust of the story. And it says in Pasuk Yud, 
להשקות את הגן, ומשם ייפרד והיה לארבעה ראשים. A river went out from Aden to water the garden, and from there it divided, and it was four heads, literally. In other words, four tributaries. And we're going to learn about the four rivers in some detail. And does Rashi have anything to say on that verse? No, which means Rashi doesn't have any problem with Pasuk Yud. So we'll move on to Pasuk Yud Aleph. So we're going to learn about the four tributaries that come from the original river. Shem he'echad, Pishon, Hu ha'sovev et kol eretz ha'chavila, asher sham ha'zahav. The name of, the, of one was Pishon. And it encircled the, all the land of Chavila, or the Chavila, where there was gold. Now, I have to say, I don't know about you, but when I read these Pesukim, I think, you know, what's going on here? We're dealing with the most fundamental story in the history of humankind. Adam and Chava in Gan Eden, we, we know what's going to happen, and it's, it's not going to be pretty, but it's going to be absolutely critical and we go off on this little rather obscure geography lesson and we talk about gold and things. And I, for one, find it curious that we go on this deviation. Um, Rashi apparently doesn't, and he doesn't give any explanation. He doesn't see any need to explain why we have this tangent. Um, I will break my rule of this year and quote somebody else who's not Rashi. Um, when we finished, I'll quote the Malbim because I think he gives a very nice vote that perhaps... I don't know if it's Peshat, but it answers the question, so I'll share that with you. So, but you might have that question of why we're talking about these four rivers and why about gold. Um, and in the next passage, we're going to go into even more detail, which seems to be irrelevant. But obviously, the Torah does think it's relevant, and Rashi doesn't have a problem with it. Okay, so having said the Pishon, sorry, we're going to see Rashi on Yud Aleph. So, River Pishon. Rashi's got to say something about the River Pishon. Rashi says, Hu Nilus. Nahar Mitzrayim. This Pishon is actually a river that we know better by another name. It's the Nilus, which we in English call the Nile, which is the river of Egypt. So in which case, if it's really the Nile, then the question is obviously, why don't we call it the Nile? No, why don't we call it the Nile? If Rashi says... No, no, why don't... Why doesn't the Torah call this river Nilus? If Rashi says, this is Nilus, then, and it's got a, which obviously implies there's a special reason why it's called Pishon, not Nilus. And so he's going to tell us why it's called Pishon. Why is the causation that way? Meaning? Why is Rashi assuming that it is the Nilus, and that the Torah has called it something different, as opposed to, it is the Pishon, but we call it something different? Maybe back then it was called... I hear the question. Um, let me uh, let me like talk for a minute while I think of the answer. Um, <laughs> there are many many places in the Gemara, shh, guys, where uh, it says the person called X. It's usually people, sometimes places. The person called X is really Y, and I'll tell you why he's called X. And it is always that way round. But I think we know it as Nilus. I just call it the Nile. Okay, that's what we know. So when we talk about the river of Egypt, we all know it's the Nile. 
Apparently so does Rashi. And so does the uh, audience at an earlier time as well. It's not just an 11th century thing, because Rashi says it. So um, elsewhere in the Chumash, it's called Nahar Mitzrayim. I don't know if it's called the Nile in the Chumash. I suspect not, because I can't think of an occasion when it is. The rest of Nach, I don't know, because I'm not exactly a Baki in Nach. Um, but nevertheless, Rashi is saying, this river is the Nile. Now, that implies that the Nile is the name that we know it by. Otherwise, he wouldn't say that. If we knew it even equally as Pishon, he would say Pishon is Pishon. Right? So he says it's the Nile, which means the Nile is the name usually given to it. If that's the case, then we have to ask, why is the Torah not giving it the usual name? It's giving it an unusual name. So what's the significance in its unusual name? So Rashi gives, interestingly, two explanations of Pishon. So having said, who Nilos Nahar Mitzrayim? Because its waters are blessed and they rise up and they irrigate the land, that's why it's called Pishon. What's the connection? Which is a puzzle from Habakkuk. Um, that's what it says here. That's why I know. And in Habakkuk... It says, there were lots of parashav, which means horsemen. Um, so, pishu means lots. And says Rashi, that fits with the waters of the Nile, which rise up and irrigate the land. Why do they rise up? It just occurs to me that Rashi could be referring to one of two things. So, we know there's an interesting thing about the Nile. Rashi actually says this many times, and we know this from our studies of geography. What's clever about the Nile? What does the Nile do every year? overflows, it floods. So the Nile Delta, as it's called, is very heavily populated because it's fertile in the middle of the desert. If you look at the um, uh, demography map of Egypt, it's quite remarkable. It is intensely populated just on both sides of the Nile and it's empty in the rest of the country um, because there's not a lot of rain in Egypt. But because of the Nile, you don't need rain because the Nile overflows every year. At least that's what uh, Rashi says. So that's why I base it on. Um, (laughs) Rashi also says that it just occurs to me there might be another reason why it rises up, because Yaakov came to Egypt and there was a bracha because Yaakov came to Egypt and the bracha was but the river Nile would rise up. So it could be Rashi's referring to either of those. I suspect it might be the latter because he says mitbarchim, but the waters were blessed. And elsewhere, um, when Rashi talks about Yaakov, he says the bracha was but the waters would rise. So maybe that's what Rashi's referring to. Okay. Anyway, so what do we see? That Pishan comes from the word Peishin, which means lots of, and the waters were blessed, and there were lots of them, and they overflowed. And then Rashi says, another explanation, Pishan, Shahu Magadel Pishtin. It's the place where you grow Pishtan, which is flax. Pishtan is related to Pishan. That's the connection. How do we know that you grow flax? In Egypt, Shneemar, as it says, Eitzel Mitzrayim, by Mitzrayim, in Yahshua, sorry, uh, uh, in Yashiahu, Uvoshu Avde Pishtin. The makers of flax will be um, ashamed. So, what uh, the passage there, if you look at the context, it talks about Hashem is going to punish Egypt and he's going to dry up the river. And one of the consequences of drying up the river will be that the Pishtin makers, the flax makers, will be embarrassed, more than embarrassed. They'll be like, 
devastated because they won't be able to make their flax because they won't have the river anymore. So two explanations of Rashi. So why does he have to bring either? And the answer is because having said that the river is really the Nile, he wants to explain why it's called Pishan in this case. He gives two explanations. The Masculine David, which is the, the best place to look, in my opinion, for why there are two explanations, just says simply, they're both lacking. Because they both don't really fully explain the word Pishon. They give something similar, but not the same. One says, it's Kamo Ufashu Parashav. There were lots of. And the other says, Pishon is related to Pishtan, which means flax. But it's not all that close, because it misses the tough. So either way, it's close, but not very, very close. Says the muscular David, that's why Rashi is not 100% satisfied with either explanation, and he brings the second. Okay. So, yes? In terms of um, the notion of having rivers in general, like Rashi earlier spoke about when it said, like, Kilok and Tzir, that there had not been rain. That was because there was no man to pray for rain. But here, like, Rashi's happy with that it. it's the rivers that, in fact, caught, like, irrigate the land. Um, that is a very good point. I was actually just thinking that as we were reading it. Um, let's just remind everyone that in Pasuk, um, hey and I, I've referred to this already a few times tonight because it's, it's quite an uh, important pasuk, that there was no shrubs um, and there was no herbage or vegetation. Um, so there was no rain. Now the pasuk doesn't say explicitly that you need rain to irrigate the land to make things grow, but it sort of implies that. Then in pasuk vav, a mist came up. But Rashi made the point there explicitly that the mist was not going to water everything. It was just going to provide the water necessary to knead the dust into the shape of man. Okay, okay so don't, Rashi makes the point, don't think that that mist was going to make things grow. Because that's not what it was doing. Now, it occurs to me that the answer to your question may be that this was unique to the garden. Because in Pasuk Yud, what we just saw, it says, So it just may be, and this is just my thought, uh, as we begin to explore the answer to your question, that everywhere else needs rain. But the garden had its own built-in irrigation system. And it does say, And your question, you said, to water the earth, but it doesn't say to water the earth, it says to water the garden. So maybe that's an answer. It's a good question. Well, remember, the garden and the Eden are not the same thing. The garden is a part of Eden. So there's Eden, the garden's in the east of Eden. Rashi made that clear in the previous verse. So the, the water, the river came out of Eden, presumably goes through the garden, irrigating it, and then splits into the four, okay. and goes in four directions. But yes? The Nile is in it's one of the tributaries, the Nile is one of the four tributaries. What's yeah. your question? You're wondering where Ganadin was? No, no, no. The if, Nile if, we, if, your, if your explanation for Sarah's question is that rain is needed on earth but not in the garden. Uh, yes, I'm just, I haven't seen it anyway. It's just my thought. Okay, so if that's the explanation, but the Nile is also in Aden. Like, that's why Egypt doesn't need rain. Ah, so, then, so Egypt's a place that doesn't need rain. Just like Gan Eden, perhaps doesn't need rain. 
So then it doesn't really fulfill the explanation. So then I'm going to have to work harder and I'm currently going to get twisted up. That it sounds like Ghanaian doesn't need rain and Egypt doesn't need rain. Not that Egypt is Ghanaian. And if you've ever been to Egypt, you'll know that it's really not Ghanaian. Um, okay, I'll leave that as Sorachian. Great question. Uh, next passage, you'd bet. Uh, and this is what I meant when I said we're going off at a tangent, which has always bothered me, because now we've been told there's four rivers. And one of them is Pishon, which goes uh, around the land of Hachavila, where there is gold. And now we're going to talk about the gold. So we've really gone on a tangent to a tangent. Pasuk Yudbet. Uzahav ha'aretz hahi tov. And the gold of that land was good. Sham ha'bodalach ve'eben ha'shoham. There was the Bodalach, which is translated as crystal, and Evan Hashoham, which is the Shoham stone. Um, Art scroll leaves it untranslated. Um, it just occurs to me, maybe because it's the parashiot that we're learning at the moment, what was the Evan Hashoham used for? Everyone, okay, for those listening at home, everyone around the room is touching their shoulders here because they are, they are, uh, emul- they are demonstrating the aphod. And the ephod, which the Kohen Gadol wore, which we learned about again in yesterday's parasha, had the Eben HaShoham, I'm doing it now myself, on his shoulders <laughs> with the names of the 12 tribes engraved on them. And that is what Eben HaShoham is in the Torah. It's the stones that were part of the ephod worn by the Kohen Gadol. So it just occurs to me that at the very beginning of Bereshit, at the beginning of creation, the Eben HaShoham was already there and was already mentioned. Perhaps if you want to say, uh, the Ramban, for instance, says that building the Mishkan, Mishkan was like the pinnacle of creation, but the Torah is telling us that the raw materials that were getting, going to be used in the Mishkan on the Big Tikkahuna were there at the very beginning and they're mentioned. Maybe. The Ramban, the way he, in his introduction to Shemot, says that the you know, ultimate level that Bnei Israel had to reach was to build the Mishkan. And that's why it's part of the Sefer Shemot, because coming out of Egypt is, is just the beginning of redemption. The full redemption is when they built the Mishkan. Yes, just a moment. Yes. Um, is there any significance with the fact that in Rashi it says this is the Nile, the river of Egypt, it's the first place that on earth has been mentioned that has been gone in? Is that anything? Um, well, it's an interesting point. Notice it's Rashi mentioning it, not the Chumash. Right. Now, the Chumash has mentioned, Chumash is going to mention places. The Pasuk didn't say Nahar Mitzrayim. Rashi did. The Pasuk did say Eretz HaChavila. So that's actually, to be honest, the first place that's mentioned that's not Canadian. Eretz HaChavila. Um, so I think, really, I have to say no, because it's not the, if it were the Chumash mentioning Mitzrayim, I might be, uh, I might look for more significance rather than just Rashi mentioning. Having said that, Mitzrayim was... As we know, a lot of Jewish history in the, in the Chumash is intertwined with Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim was a very important place. And in Parshas Noach, the Mr. Mitzrayim is mentioned, and, and the people who come from Ham and who settled there are mentioned. Um, so it, it's not so surprising that Mitzrayim gets an early mention, because it's absolutely crucial in world history. Um, and perhaps it also represents a sort of tendency. We're told that we mustn't do like they did in Mitzrayim because Mitzrayim is especially bad and, and we have to not follow the ways of Mitzrayim. So for various reasons, Mitzrayim is important as a historical place, as a geographical place, as a place of a certain lifestyle. So it's not surprising 
that Rashi mentions it earlier. However, I have to say, in answer to your question, it's not the Chumash mentioning it, so I don't think it's so significant. You had a question. With the stones, so they're created now, and then they're used in the Mishkan. Possibly. Possibly. Does he go into detail about, because we often hear about things that are created and then used no, he doesn't. And like by the way, the this journey is journey to get because like, someone would have to like take care of it. It doesn't just. You think of the Shamir that uh, Shlomo yeah, Hamelach had and to go and get, like, and it's just right. a bit weird that like it, they're never mentioned and they show off yep. again, and it's like. like a, 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 uh, okay, remember, yeah, this this thing about that that it's mentioned here, it's it's me rather than anybody more important than me. So it, it may not be significant, and we've also had this Bodolach. A bodolach mentioned, which is crystal, and I don't know why that's mentioned. Um, so, um, if, if this is the Ebenezer Shoham that is then used in the Mishkan, yes, it's, it's certainly interesting, but it's at a certain time and place and going to be used later. I don't know more about that. Okay, let's move on. Let's do one more river. Uh, Rashi's got nothing to say on Yud Bet, so we'll go straight on to Yud Gimel. Veshem Hanaha Hasheni Gichon. And the second river was called Gichon. Who has surveyed at Kol Eretz Kush? So the first river circumvented Eretz Hachavila. The second river circumvents Kush, the land of Kush. Have we heard about the land of Kush? It's Ethiopia or Abyssinia. It's where a Kushite comes from. Um, but we'll talk. Well, Rashi actually has got something to say about Kush, but not on this verse. After Pasuk Yudalad, he goes back to talk about Kush. But he doesn't mention it here. Here he mentions what Gichon means. And he says, Yud Gimel, Shahaya holech v'homma, v'hamiyoto gedola ma'od. So it went and homma. Now, homma, according to Azkrol, means roared. And it makes sense to mean roar. And its roaring was gedola ma'od, was very great. Kamo, and Rashi brings a comparison to the word Gichon, ki yigach. When an ox yigach, what does an ox do in Mishpatim and in Baba Metzia? Gores. Uh, it's not a word that we use very often, but uh, we, if you learn Baba Metzia, you use it a lot because an ox gores. Shemenageach v'holech v'homa. That when it's goring, it goes and roars. So, gach is to gore. It doesn't actually mean to roar, but it's associated with a noisy thing. A, when an ox gores, it's also roaring. Now, by the way, homiya is a word that we might be familiar because it's a word in a song that we sing. And it doesn't mean roar when we sing it there. What does it mean? Kolobaleva ponima nefesh yehudi, homiya. You are no, the kolobaleva ponima, there's always in the heart internally, nefesh yehudi, of the heart of the soul of a Jew. Homiya is usually translated in Hatikva as beating, like the heart beats. So um, maybe it doesn't mean beat in Hatikva, but I always thought it did. Maybe it means roaring, or maybe it means both. And there is a connection. It makes some sort of background noise. But Rashi is using it as in roaring. Um, okay, I think that's all we want to say. That's what Rashi says. And I think we will stop there because it's 9.29. Next week, Yemir Tashem, we'll start from Pasuk Yudalad. Okay.